Welcome to the Upper Room Community Church Podcast. Wherever you are in your journey, we hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit us at upperroom.ca. Good morning. I'm Serena. And I'll be the scripture today from 2 Corinthians 5, verses 11 to 21. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. We haven't had a chance to meet yet. My name is Dave, and I have the joy of serving on staff here as uh, one of the pastors. And uh, I want to ask you a question this morning, right from the beginning. How are you? That was unsuspecting, wasn't it, right? How are you? I heard one person just shout out, tired, I think. I get that. I, I can, I, I get that. Um, how are you? It's one of these questions <clears throat> that um, we probably get asked like every day, um, and if not, <laughs> something you need to make new friends, I guess. Um, no, no, no. It's something we get asked all the time, right? And it, it's as of late, it's been one of these questions that's actually been starting to bug me a little bit. Not not because I don't like talking to people, not because I don't want to tell other people how I'm doing. It's just because if you really stop and think about it, if you really like take the pulse uh, on on how you're doing, it's a pretty weighted question, isn't it? It'd be like a pretty loaded question. One of the ways I've wanted to respond, but I haven't yet, actually Sandra said I, I shouldn't actually say this, in response is, how much time do you have? <laughs> right? Like, because there's always a lot of stuff going on. And so when you get asked that, there's various responses <clears throat> that you could have. Oftentimes, you say, oh, I'm doing good. Or it's not even grammatically correct. Some of you want to be even more proper. You say, oh, I'm doing well. You know, I'm doing well. Or some of you will say, I'm thankful today. Or some of you will say, you know, I'm hopeful <clears throat> today. Or I'm glad to be here today. One thing I've found myself uh, saying, I'm catching myself saying it uh, more often than not, is when somebody asks me how I'm doing, is I'll say, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm busy, but, I, but, I'm, but I'm good. And you probably, like if you're honest with yourself, you probably find yourself saying, I'm busy a lot too, right? If you're like me, you probably are saying that to somebody as you're trying to walk past them to get wherever it is you're trying to go. I'm busy, and actually you're getting in the way of my busyness or, or my priorities, right? And um, <clears throat> we're a busy people. And busyness is, is not just um, something that we can kind of ignore because it's actually something that's become rather commonplace in, in the world that we live in. It's busy. 
It's chaotic. We have all sorts of priorities. We have all sorts of things that we, th- we need to do, things we think we need to do. We're all confused about all of this. And, and even if you just like living in um, you know, a big city or near a big city like we do, even if you just stop and think about the amount of time you spend going from place to place, whether that's commuting, whether that's in transit, whether that's in Uber, whether that's on public, whatever it may be, even if you just stop and think of the amount of time you spend going from place to place to so the different things that are making you busy, just the time in there is enough to make you feel overwhelmed, right? So like, it's not an uncommon thing in the city of Toronto, or in the GTA, to have more than two hours of commuting every day for some people. It's just not an uncommon thing. Actually, why don't we pull the room right now? Show of hands. Uh, on a weekly basis, okay, how many of you spend at least four hours a week in your car, on a train, on a bus, in a cab, in an Uber, on your bike, or walking from place? At least four hours. Look around, it's a lot of hands. Six hours, keep your hand up. <clears throat> Eight hours, 10 hours, 12 hours, or anybody here like long haul truck drivers or anything maybe, just, that just came into my mind. Um, drive for a living, maybe drive the bus. And so, but like, so like, that's a lot of time, right? Four, eight, 10, 12 more hours in transit every week, right? Some of you already started talking, so why don't I just give you permission to do that? Turn to your neighbor and tell them, what would you do with that time, if you could have some of it or all of it back, what would you do? Go ahead. <laughs> and that's just, the stuff, that's just the stuff you'd do if you got back your time spent in transit. Right? We're busy. We're part of a busy culture. And, and the reality of busyness is it's not always something that we do to ourselves. I mean, in some instances, I guess you could say, well, we're busy because we, um, we, we don't know how to say no, and we overcommit ourselves to too many different things, and that actually creates busyness. So you could say that. Um, but I would also say that um, busyness is, is something that's actually happening to us. It's almost like we're a victim of busyness, right? So take a look at the screen. You're going to see a grid. <clears throat> Let's just imagine that each one of those quadrants, each one of those little squares in the midst of the bigger square, represents a 10 or a 15-minute drive from one side of that square to the other side of the square. Right? So if you were to drive from the top all the way to the bottom, it would be roughly one hour. Okay, I thought that would be a little bit more interactive, but okay. Right? So let's just imagine this is kind of like the, the greater Toronto area. There was a time, I don't remember it, but I've been told that there was a time where the majority of an individual's life was spent within one of these quadrants. Not to say you never drove more than 10 or 15 minutes away, but take a look up there. I think it's written in green, or purple rather. You're going to see an H that represents your home, wherever you live. Then you're going to see um, W that represents work or school, right? Then you're going to see um, a three, which represents a third space, okay? So third space is like outside of work life or school life and outside of your personal life, uh, your like home life, where you spend the most amount of your time. So like if you're a fan of 90s sitcoms, this is like Seinfeld in the diner, right? Or this is like Friends at Central Perk, that third space that you frequent. For some of you, it may be a gym. For some of you, it may be a sports team. For some of you, it may be a lot, whatever it is, right? And then I also put up there a C, which represents, you know, church or place of worship. So there was a time when this was the reality. All of these um, key components in our life were this close together. But then, as the city began to grow, or as, as you know, society, uh, neighborhoods and communities were designed, things began to get pushed a little bit further away. Right? So maybe now your third space is within a 10 or 15 minute drive. You'd say it's in your immediate community, but uh, maybe your church or place of worship, if you have that in your life or have had that in your life, is just a little bit further outside of that. And now you took a job that's a little bit further away. 
Or maybe you had that job, but you moved away into another community, right, where you, could, where you could get yourself a place. And some of us are looking at what's up there now and saying, I wish that was my life, because it actually probably looks more like the next image, which is red lines, <laughs> which is chaos, which is part of the reality of what it means to live in a city that is big like ours. We are just spread out so far. And, and a lot of us don't even know what a third place is because we're so busy with our fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh and eighth priority and commitment that we don't even have time left in the day to have that third space. And so we could look at all this and we could say, well, this is just, you know, there's pros and cons to living in a big city. You know, there's a lot of good stuff that comes with a big city and you kind of just need to cut your losses. You need to realize that this is going to be how it looks. This is going to be what life is like here. You know, you get good stuff, you kind of just got to say there's some bad stuff that comes with it. Others, though, are saying, you know what? This reality is, t- is, paying, um, is taking too big a toll on my life. The amount of time I'm spending going from place to place, doing thing from thing to thing, and all of this is actually uh, paying a price in terms of my family life. Like, I just don't get enough time around my kids or with my kids. I leave before they're up or just after they get up and I get home when they're getting ready for bed and I'm missing out on something there. Others are saying this has been contributing uh, and taking a toll on my mental health in a way that I never even knew was possible. I'm anxious and worried and, and rushing and never present. I'm never in the moment. And when you start to look at this as far as, you know, the business and the chaos of life and the effects that it has on our, our time, it actually, that's nothing. That's nothing by comparison to the toll it's taking on our relationships. Because the time we spend doing all of these various things actually begin to pull apart and give, put tension on the relationships that we want to foster, the relationships that we want to have. Now, some of you might say, well, I'm driving from place to place to place to place to place to have relationships with people, which it might be true and that would be cool, except for the fact that it's probably affecting the level of uh, depth that you can have in those relationships because your time is just so spread out. And so we do need to look at the, the busyness and the chaos of our life, not just through the lens of what does this mean for my time, but what does this actually mean for the relationships that I have with people? Living in a busy society means that we need to be hyper-intentional about creating and investing in deep and meaningful relationships. And we have to recognize that we are up against something that is pulling us away from that and pulling us away from other people. And so these, these quadrants, so to speak, don't just represent time that's being lost. They actually represent relationships that are being lost or relationships that are being fragmented or relationships that are being spread out. And all of this is completely relevant to us as we're going through this series called Halfway to Heaven. For the past number of weeks, we've been looking at the ways that the church, that the people of God are meant to be uh, people that understand that this, that this life, that what we're living right now is, is actually supposed to begin, um, we're actually supposed to begin having an experience of what heaven is going to be like. That it's the place where heaven kisses earth, where there's this divine supernatural intersection, where it's not just about surviving this, trying to get to heaven or hoping to get to heaven one day somewhere else, but recognizing that God is actually doing a work in us and through us to bring the realities of who he is, of his kingdom, of his things into life right here and right now. And we purposefully called it halfway to heaven because we know that we're not all the way there yet. We know that we're a people 
that are in process. And when it comes to the strain that we feel on our, on our relationships, when we feel that the tension that comes with our time being, being uh, pursued by all different types of priorities, this is one of the areas where we get to say, yeah, yeah, this cannot be the finality of it. This cannot be the peace that God promises in its fullness. Maybe there's a taste of it right now, but, but I only feel like I'm in process in getting there. You know, from its inception, the church has always been about individuals partnering together in community who are then partnering together with God himself in bringing the kingdom of Jesus to, have, uh, the kingdom of Jesus to earth right now, right? And so uh, as Jesus was teaching his earliest followers um, how to pray, and as he teaches us how to pray, one of the things he includes in that is that we ought to be including that it would be on earth as it is in heaven, and as we pick up in this, the letter of 2 Corinthians today, uh, this letter that was written to a church sometime about 2,000 years ago, telling them about who they are and what their life is meant to look like, what this expression of being the community of God, the people of God is supposed to be like, one of the things we learn is that the way that God is actually bringing the, the realities of heaven into earth here and now is through us, through our relationships, through the people that we are connected to. And, and this is from the passage that Serena read for us a few minutes ago. There is relational language all over this passage. The writer here is a guy named Paul. We call him the Apostle Paul. He's a, a significant writer and founder of the early movement of Christians that became the church. We're here because of the work that he did those years ago in establishing the presence of Jesus, the message of Jesus, and the gospel. And all of the movement has continued. That's why we're even here today. And as he's writing, he, he's, he's making this shift kind of in his writing to start talking about the relationship that we have with God. And so he talks about how we viewed God and how God viewed us. That's relational language, right? How, what our perspective is of one another. He talks about how our relationship or our connection to God was broken. It was severed. And the result of that was death, that we actually experience a type of death. And how God does a work to restore that broken relationship to bring us back to life. And all of this, he uses, he majors on the usage of this word reconciliation, reconciled, reconciliation. He uses it three times in one sentence, you're going to see in a few minutes, which is this incredible word that actually has everything to do with what it takes to restore a relationship that is broken. And so uh, just take a look at verse 17. It should be up on the screen for you in a second. He writes, if anyone is in Christ... The new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All through the New Testament, the, the writers uh, have this beautiful way of giving us just like wonderful imagery of what it means to be reconnected to God, what it means to be in a relationship with Him. The Apostle Paul is, is, is very good at this. Um, in, in many places in his writing, he'll use this idea of receiving new life. When you come into a relationship with God, he says, it is just like you are receiving new life. You are being brought back to life. Why is that? Because apart from God, there is no life. And in God is where life is created and found and sustained. And so basically what he's saying is there is no true spiritual vitality or spiritual life outside of a relationship um, with God, which ought to perk our ears up a little bit to say, whoa, whoa, that sounds like a super important relationship to be mindful of, right? If it has to do with the difference of life and death, we ought to be paying attention to what it's like. And so he talks about new life. And here he uses this phrase, new creation, which I think is beautiful. And I think it's powerful. So what he's saying is when we enter into this relationship with the living God, we become someone new. We become something new. He even goes as far as to say the old person goes away. 
and a new person arrives. That, that, that thing that we were, that person that we were, that life that we were living, it goes away and it changes. It, our perspective begins to change in terms of how we view God, how we view ourselves even, how we view other people. And, and this is no minor thing. That it says recreation or new creation means that it affects the entirety of our personhood. Every, like this becomes, this new life uh, is, is interwoven with the very fabric of our being to the point that our, our thinking, our doing, our feeling, our everything is made new. It's different than it was before. We ought to pay attention to that. Paul is saying that you can't be new. You can't have that stuff outside of God who makes it, makes, who does that new work in you, which makes this question, well, how is it possible? How did he do it? How did he give this to us? Or how does he do this in our lives? Well, we're told in verse 18 and 19 that God is actually the one who sought us out and brought about the things that were necessary to restore this broken relationship with him. This is where he starts using that word reconcile, right? Verse 18, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And then took verse 19, that God was reconciling the word to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And this says something so big about relationships and about what reconciliation really means. Because when it comes to the relationship or the connection that we once had with God, we're the ones that are responsible for our disconnection from him. We're the ones that are responsible for breaking away from the relationship he, he wanted with, with people, from the connection of life that he had with people. We're the ones that have ignored him, pretended that he's not there. We're the ones that never heard about him, if maybe that's the case, you hadn't heard about him and never really pursued him truly. It was somebody else had to bring it into you. We're the ones that, that often think that we actually know better than the creator of heaven and earth. But go, well, you know, that's good. You put everything together. You sustain it. You're keeping it all going. You're ultimately wisdom okay, but I still think I'm gonna just going to go my way on this one. Right? We're the ones that do that. We're the ones who rebel. We're the ones who go against him. We go our own way. And as we do this, ultimately what's happening is we're breaking God's heart because he's created life in such a beautiful, it to be this beautiful, wonderful way of leading us to, fu- to, to fullness to vitality. And by walking away from that, we end up breaking his heart because we're not taking the very thing that he wants for us. And not only that, as we walk away from him, we hurt ourselves and we end up ultimately hurting other people as well. This leaves us in what scripture talks about being this state of spiritual deadness. This is, this is what sin is. We, we've heard that word before, but this is what sin is. Stuff that breaks God's heart, stuff that hurts us, stuff that hurts other people around us. And yet, And yet, even though that's true, God looks at us in our lostness, God looks at us in our confusion, God looks at us in our rebellion, and he looks at us not with anger, not with with hatred, he actually looks at us with compassion. That's what's summed up in this verse, that he does not count our sin against us. He doesn't look at all these things we've done to sever the relationship as anything that could ever serve as too much of a barrier to keep him from getting to us. Now, this does not mean that sin doesn't matter. This doesn't mean that rebellion doesn't matter. This doesn't mean that walking away from God doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that ignorance towards God doesn't matter or has no meaning. It actually has huge meaning. It's so big and it's so important because it is the very thing that caused that separation between us and him. And again, I I mentioned this, but scripture tells us that sin leaves us in a state of spiritual deadness. And so something that is dead cannot become alive on its own. Something that is dead 
needs something or someone else uh, that has life to bring that life and put it into the dead thing to bring it back to life. And so this separation was not just that we were going our own way and God was doing his thing and we were doing our thing, but it actually left us dead. Meaning there was nothing we could do unless there was a way that an outside source would bring in this new life. And this is where the power of this phrase or this idea of reconciliation comes in. It's the very truth that we are the ones who hurt God, offended God, and were left dead. It's this very idea of reconciliation that tells us just how tremendous the love of God actually is. Because God in this whole equation, God in this relationship, he's the offended party. And yet he's the one who does what is necessary to pay the price to make right with us who have purposefully hurt him, offended him, and walked away from him. Is that not upside down from what we think it should be? Like, and just, just take a personal analysis of your life for a moment. Think of the last time you were hurt. Not the last time you stubbed your toe, but like the last time you were hurt relationally. Somebody hurt you, offended you, broke your heart. What was your, what was your disposition? Was it, was it one that said, man, they just need to come and apologize to me. And you know, even if they did apologize to me, I don't know if I would fully forgive them or there would for sure need be some time, right? Is there like a sense of entitlement that says, well, they're the ones who hurt me. So I'm going to wait on them to, to come and make right with me. I'm, I'm going to ignore them until that happens. Probably, right? That's, that's how I tend to function. It's like, well, you hurt me. Uh, you took something away from me you come make it right with me. But God is backwards on this, or seemingly backwards. We're backwards. He's right, obviously. He's the right one. And yet it all seems so backwards because he's the one who says, you did all of these things. You're actually deserving of the death and the separation and the confusion and the lostness. But I love you so much that I'm not going to let you stay that way. He's the one who pursues that right and proper restored relationship with us the one who looks at us with compassion and love. And it's like he's saying, even though you've hurt me, even though you've hurt others, even though you're killing yourself in all this, I still love you. And I still want you. I want to pursue a relationship with you. I want you to know that it's possible to be in a right relationship with me, one that takes you out of spiritual deadness, brings you to spiritual life, makes you into a new creation, and gives you this, 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 um, this restored new creation connection to me, the source of all life. And, and none of this is cheap. None of this is cheap or inexpensive. This is incredibly expensive because in order for God to have done this, it says that he did this act of reconciliation. He's doing this reconciling work. How? Through Jesus. What does that mean? In order, in order for God to do this reconciling work in us and to, and to us and through us to restore this relationship, he had to pay the price of giving up his son. That was his sacrifice. That was the cost. That was the payment. That was the price. And so he gives up his son, Jesus. And as Jesus, who is life, gives up his life and dies, we are able to receive from him that life from outside of us that we couldn't have. Paul, Paul uses throughout this letter um, this exchange kind of language, right? So, so last week, Vijay talked about how Jesus became um, spiritually poor so that we might become spiritually rich, remember? And he talked about how uh, Jesus became, um, Jesus gave up his grace, all the grace that he had, he gave it up so that we could receive it even when we didn't have it. And Paul is saying something similar here. He's saying Jesus became dead so that we could become alive. That's a big exchange. That's a big exchange. Jesus became dead so that we could become alive. 
In verse 21, it says that God made him who knew, so God made Jesus, who knew no sin, as in Jesus didn't know sin, had, well, he knew what sin was, but he didn't have any of his own sin. He never did anything wrong. He never hurt the Father. He never hurt himself. He never hurt anyone else around him. But God made him to be sin so that in him, when we become connected to him, we might become the righteousness of God. There's that switch. That's the new creation. Jesus gives up what he has so that we might receive something that we could never get on our own. And scripture, the narrative of scripture says that this is all something that is received by faith. There's no, like, we can't go and write a check for any of this. You know, this is, there's no amount of good things we could do morally, ethically, whatever, that would actually get this for us. It's something that is a gift that Jesus is saying, this is what I've done for you. Do you receive it? And when we do receive it by faith, that's where the restoration comes in that relationship with God. This is powerful. Paul says, because of all this, because you're a new creation, because you understand what it means to be reconciled to God, because of living in this, this, this place of, of continual reliance on God, because you've experienced the love of God, what then begins to happen is it motivates you to go and, and tell other people about this very truth. Like one of the things that we, we understand, for those of you that are walking and following, and following Jesus, over time, one of the things we begin to recognize is that there is no way it can just be for me. There's no way it can just be for you. There's no way it can just be for us. It has to be for more and more people. And actually, that's the heart of God. It's that every person would come into this restored relationship, that every person would hear of the news of his love, that they would experience this restored, revitalized, resurrected from the dead relationship with the living God. And, and he has not given up trying to tell people. He has not given it up. And you know what's one of the methods that God is choosing to use to tell the world this message of reconciliation? You and me. It's through us. It says right there, God is making his appeal through us. God has done a work in us that's not just for us, though it is for us, and we receive that. It's a work that he does in us and then through us for the sake of reaching others, which means that if you're, in, if you're following Jesus, if you're following Jesus, that, that we are on this mission, we are joined together in partnership with him in showing the rest of the world, every person that we meet, showing them what this means to be made right and reconciled with him. He, he's given us, we now have, by faith in Jesus, with God, we can have this, this wholesome, peaceful, forgiven, loving relationship. And so the way that he's moving through us is that we would go into the world and actually have relationships that are just like this. It's his love that motivates us. Paul actually uses the word persuades uh, earlier on in the passage. I think it's verse 11. He says, you know, we, because of this love, because we've seen God, because we fear God, you know, we, we understand who he is. This actually persuades us to tell others, meaning it can't just be as simple as just keeping it for myself. It has to be something, there has to be something more. But man, is there ever a big question that we have to ask? Look at that grid again, that scary, terrifying grid. How do we actually do this? And, and how are we meant to live out, or how can we actually live out these, type, these types of, of life-giving relationships that, that, that through them God works in, and tells others of his love? Like, how do we do this in light of what we're looking at on the screen? What does it look like to pursue, to pursue wholesome and full and loving and peaceful relationships with people in the chaotic world that we're living in? What does this actually look like? 
think it means, for starters, anyways, I think it means that we have to start right where we are in the places or in the quadrants, if you will, where we already are and rethink the types of relationships we have with the people we already are around. This means that you don't have to move to do this. God may at some point ask somebody to ask you to move for this. That's where we ought to be open to that. But right here, right now, I don't think we have to move. I don't think this means you need to quit your job and do something, do another job. I don't think this means you need to drop a course. I don't think this even means you need to uh, change too much about your regular daily, weekly, monthly rhythms. I think it just means we ought to think about what are we doing with the people we're in relationship right here and right now. This is the way that heaven is making its way into earth. The presence of God is making its way into earth. God is using us to work through our relationships. You know, Jesus is famously <clears throat> quoted um, as saying, love your neighbor as yourself. Have you heard this before? I sure hope so, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Even if you didn't grow up in church or any spiritual background or whatever, you've probably heard that phrase and it's attributed to Jesus. He's the one who said it. Now people have, you can read for like ever on what exactly uh, Jesus meant or what people think Jesus actually meant. What does it mean to love? Well, and then who is your neighbor? And Jesus said that in a very particular context where there was religious and racial and ethnic uh, issues. Is it only in that setting or not? And I say, go read if you want to read, have, have at it. But I think we don't need to overcomplicate it. I think when Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, at least the way I'm choosing to interpret it is like this, that I need to love my neighbor, the people that live beside me, the people that are right around us, that we work around, that we study around, that we hang out with already, the people that are already right here, right now, the people that we live close to. God wants to reveal this message of reconciliation and his love to others. He's choosing to do it through us, which means we have to rethink the types of relationships we have and the way that we're investing in people. And you know what I've learned over the years? And I do not mean to sound patronizing or condescending ever, but for sure not when I say this next thing. You know what I've learned? Is that it is really, really hard, if, if not even impossible, to show love to people who you don't even know. And you know what else I've learned? It is really, really difficult to be in relationships with people when you don't even know their names. Okay, story time, confession time. Sandra and I, I'll confess, you guys can do that later in your home group. Sandra and I have lived in our neighborhood for seven years. Well, more than seven years, actually. And uh, it wasn't until um, this past summer that we actually started to get to know the names of people that live around us, our neighbors, right? And so we had talked to our immediate neighbors, like we live in a townhome, so we share a driveway with people. So we had talked to them because what are you going to do? Not talk to them? They're right there. Come on. Like you get that, right? So we talked to them and that's nice. And actually one set of neighbors moved out and a new set of neighbors moved in and we've had a relationship with them. But beyond that, like we referred to our neighbors as, you know, by the number of the house that they lived in or the kind of dog that they walked, or like white SUV family. Uh, I mean, the, the SUV is white, not the family. <laughs> That's why you just stick to the notes, you, okay? Like we just refer to people by trivial facts, trivial things we knew about them. It's actually funny because that family is not white, actually. It's even more funny if you know that background piece. Um, and so we knew this trivial stuff about them, but we didn't know them. And so we would wave to them and like we would just, you know, as we're driving out in the morning, we'd wave. And then as we're driving back in, we'd, we'd just kind of drive and we'd go back inside to our house. And like, 
And it was getting to a point where we're like, man, I have preached enough messages now and I've been convicted enough time by the Spirit of God in reading Scripture that I need to be actually getting to know people around me and around us. And Sanders like actually way better at this and prodding us towards this than, than I am on my own. And so this, this summer, I'd be out cutting the grass or we'd be walking the kids somewhere or whatever and somebody would wave and I'd wave and I'd say, hey. And I said, no, I need to do the thing, the awkward thing, the hard thing of just walking across the road and introducing myself to them. And you know how many times this summer I had to swallow my pride and say to people, hi, my name is Dave. I've lived here for seven years and I know we've waved to each other before, but I've never come and introduced myself. How are you? What's your name? And never once did I have a neighbor go. <laughs> Every time they've said, hey, yeah, well, we've lived here for longer than that, actually. Or, you know, yeah, we just moved in. Or, hey, it's good. Yeah, we've seen you around. You're the ones with the kids, right? Or whatever. You know, like, they, like they, they, would, they would always respond into that. And that taught us an important lesson that you just need to get over. I had honestly, church, listen, I had honestly fantasized about moving to start over in a new neighborhood and just be landed there so I could start meeting new people. As if that would be easier, if that was easier somehow than just talking to the people that are already around me. And like God is saying like, for real, you think you're going to move somewhere else and go through all of that madness when you can't even do it right here, right now? Like talk about just like, this is just, God is doing something through me and hopefully speaking into you in that, right? And so um, we did get to know some neighbors. We did start hanging out with neighbors more and more. And, and then we started to talk about, well, what would it look like to actually take advantage of some things that are already going on around us to like maximize meeting new people, right? So we decided to throw a front lawn Halloween party, okay? So this was on October 31st. We decided to set up a tent on our front lawn and we handed out, invita we made invitations. We handed out to Jack's class at school, to all of the daycare, to all of our neighbors, if they had kids or didn't have kids, and we invited them. Now, some of those pictures are like so, so bad quality. Um, that's my dad took those on his phone, which apparently he dropped in a bucket of plaster before coming. And like, I think if we had like an Etch-a-Sketch, you could have got a better rendition of what was going on um, up there. Okay. So I just recognize that Sandra has better pictures on her phone if you want to see. Um, but we said like, Hey, what if we set up a tent uh, in the pouring rain as it was? And what if we served hot dogs? And what if we served coffee? And what if we uh, had candy bags? And Sandra had this brilliant idea of doing like a guessing game. How many worms are in the, in the jar, like candy worms and how many candy pumpkins are in a jar. So write your name on this paper and then write your guess on the paper and then write your contact info on the paper talk about a thinker, so we could call you later, text you later to tell you that you won, but also give us an entire list of people's names so we could figure that out and then maybe invite them to something around Christmas time is something that we've been, that we're thinking about. Um, and I don't know for sure, but I'd say that over the course of the night, we had somewhere around 150, 175 people on our lawn and coming through, right? We gave away 77 hot dogs, 20 cups of coffee, 600 pieces of candy, I don't know, some math like that. Crazy, right? But in the goings, in all this happening, we got to meet people, people we had already known. We chatted with them a little more. Um, people that we didn't know that lived around us, we got to know their names and kind of put together some context of who they are. And, and it's an, an amazing thing. And you know what people said over and over and over and over again? They were so thankful, first of all. But then they would always say, like, why are you doing this? Like, not like in a critical way, but like, no, why are you doing this? One person said, what's the special occasion? I'm like, well, you're out trick-or-treating with your kids. It's like Halloween is the special occasion. But, but what he meant under that what he meant under that was like, why would anybody do this? Like, why be so generous? Why, why try this whole thing? Which, and so we, we said, every time they asked, here's what we said, because we want you to know the love of Jesus. I didn't say that once. <laughs> it's true. Oh my goodness, is it ever true? 
But it's not what I said. You know what I said? We did this because we wanted to get to know our neighbors. We want to get to know our community. We want to be able to serve our community by offering something fun like this. And, and that kind of response, like, why are you doing this, is just evidence of the way that our relationships have been so fragmented and so pulled apart, where the way that we connect and interact with, with other people it, it makes us almost question motive, right? Because it's like, why are you doing this? But just because there's love here, because I like you guys, like, because we want to get to know you, you know? Like, do we want them to know the love of God and the message of reconciliation? Absolutely. But the way that God is choosing to, to bring out his message of reconciliation is by calling us into reconciled relationships. And as we're connected to people, it's through that that he is going to make his move. And in order for us to get there, we have to get to know people. We have to know their name. We have to hear their story. We have to spend time around them. And then watch, it will come out naturally. Now, you got to hear me when I say this. This isn't easy. And, and also, I'm not suggesting that this is exactly what you need to do. I'm for sure not saying we've met our quota, check the box, and we're good till next year. That's not at all what we're saying. This is just like a step of something God was saying to us that he invited us into and we followed him in. And, and I don't even always want to do this stuff. Like I could think of one instance with one family this summer that Sandra was getting to know a little bit. And, and actually this family, they invited themselves over to our place for dinner. They were at the park and said, hey, we should get together and have dinner sometime. Sandra's like, oh, well, yeah, okay, sure. He said, well, what about tonight? Well, can we, come, can we come over? We'll just order a pizza. And Sandra admits to having like this anxiety rush through her. Tonight, what are you talking about? Like what, the state, what state is the house in? What are we going to eat? What are we going to whatever? And she said, no, this is the right thing. We've actually been asking God to lead us into relationships. They want a relationship with us. She texts me and said, Dave, hey, uh, you know, Sarah and Brad and the kids are coming over for pizza. Is that okay? And I'm looking at my phone like, I don't want to do this. I just want to come home and get yes to pizza and yes to the couch, but no to the friends. And, and like, why? Like, because we get the, what the, you get it, right? You get it, right? And, and, you know, for what it's worth, with that family um, in particular, we've now hung out a number of times and we had them over to our place uh, for pizza again. That's like a thing we do. Um, and uh, we had them over for pizza just a couple of weeks ago. And as well, <laughs> while, while our kids and their kids were like completely uh, trashing our house, basically, um, we were able to sit on the couch and begin having this conversation about what it means to be uh, a part of a church that's starting a new site in a town very close to where we live. So what does that look like? They both told us that they both grew up in church context, but had since kind of walked away from it. And, and I was able to share what it's like to be a pastor and what it's like to be, you know, a Christian family and, and what this third site thing is all about and why we're actually doing it. And we're hopeful that this relationship will continue and that we'll be able to, you know, invite them to Christmas Eve at the very least in King City to see. And this is why we're doing that very thing. We're not bringing, you know, making moves into local communities uh, so that way your drive is shorter on a Sunday. We're doing all this work to put the context of Christian community in the quadrant where you're living, where I'm living, for this very reason. And so, in light of our busy and chaotic lives that look like that grid, there's a couple of questions we have to ask ourselves. Namely, what quadrant do you need to invite Jesus into right now? Hear me, church. This is, this is not about adding another item to your to-do list. This is not adding something extra. It's about rethinking and, and taking a totally new approach to the relationships in the spaces that we already are in. And that's the second question, right? Which areas of our life, which quadrant of our life, if you want to look at it that way, might God be inviting us, in, inviting us to connect more meaningful 
more meaningfully with those who are around us already. So, so thinking about at home, your neighbors, right? What does that look like for you? Does it look like walking across the street? Does it look like inviting somebody for pizza? Does it look like joining the parent council? Does it look like doing something else like that? Maybe. The quadrants you're already in, the people that are already around you. What about at work? I just, one came to me this morning in the shower <laughs> of how we could do this at work. And it's as simple as this. Don't eat your lunch alone anymore. Like, don't, don't hide out at your desk with your headphones on or, you know, in your cubicle or whatever. Don't do that anymore. Make a point of, of sharing lunch with other people, of, of going into your cafeteria or going, whatever your setting is, however that looks. Just don't eat alone. Say, hey, can we, you want to grab lunch today? Or, oh, I brought a lunch. Oh, cool, me too. Let's just, let's just eat. Or, hey, can I take you out for lunch? Just lean into that right where you are already. Another one that came to me this morning was, um, uh, if you're a student, study groups. Like, rub shoulders with these people and spend more time with them. Hang out. Don't just make it about studying. Make it about sharing in life together. Build meaningful relationships with these people that are already around you. Maybe God is going to ask you to go looking for new people. That's possible. He does that. But I'm certain he's already talking to you about the people that are right there. What about those of you who do commute, have those crazy amount of hours in the car or on the train? How do you redeem that? Podcasts aren't a bad thing, but getting on the phone is a better thing. Okay, so like who, I mean, I think of it, I drive, you know, it takes me roughly 45 minutes to 50 minutes to get from home into the hub when I have to be there in Vaughan, okay? And so I often think about who can I call up on the drive home? Sometimes I literally book phone meetings for that time when I'm in the car, right? Um, but other, uh, some of you might be thinking, yeah, you know what? Actually, there's somebody I could call and that's like, I could regain an entire relationship just by putting in calls. We got to rethink the relationships, the people that we already know in the quadrants we're already in because God broke into the chaos and busyness of our personal lives and he met us right where we are. And more than that, he's placed us exactly where we are. And God broke into our lives and that we were living and, and restored us to him, restored the relationship that we have with him. He reoriented our lives to him. And I know that he's calling us to do the same thing as we engage and interact with other people. And it's a humbling thing to recognize that God wants to do this through us. But it also means that him doing it through us means we're never on our own. We always have the community of other, of other faithful people that are trying to live this out, but we also have the certainty of the promise that wherever we go, whatever we do, I will be there with you. That's actually the words Jesus used when he sent his disciples out to go and begin this whole movement of Christianity. And he gives them this thing called the Great Commission. You can read about it in Matthew 28. He says, go and wherever you go, I'm gonna be with you always till the end of the age forever. I'm going to be with you, doing it with you, doing it through you, showing the world this message of love. And, and church, as we do this, as we pursue relationships like this, he will, make, he, will, he will use us to speak that message and people will begin to see that heaven is not so far away, that God is actually bringing it here and it's actually something that he's giving to us in himself. I'm going to invite the team to come and I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for moving into the neighborhood. Like you came from the heavenly realm and you became a person and you lived life here on earth. Now I was on the other side of the world from where we happen to be today, but you still came and, be, you still came and, and lived a relatively normal life for most of it, most of your time on earth, around other people, working around other people, being a part of the culture and the society. And then when the time was right, the Father in heaven began to work through you to start reaching other people around you with this message of good news, this message of reconciliation to the Father that we don't have to live these confused and backwards and lost, sinfully dead lives anymore, 
but we can be reconnected to the almighty God, the living God, who is the creator and the source and the sustainer of life. And so Jesus, I'm asking that you would make that same thing true in our lives. That as we just engage with people around us, that we intentionally get to know people that are around us already, that you in your perfect and good timing would guide us to know when it's time to start speaking about who you are and what your love is, about what the message of reconciliation is. But we even know, God, that before we open our mouths to start sharing of those specific words, that you're already doing a work in the, our actions and how we're relating to people. And Lord, I know that we will catch our neighbors we, by surprise. We will catch our coworkers, our, our other students, our people in our neighborhood. We will catch them all by surprise when we engage in them and take interest in them and show them that they're valuable. And this is not about some cheap sales pitch, you know, that we're gonna leverage. Let's get to know people just so we can, you know, try and land a sale or whatever try and get somebody saved. That's not what this is. That's not what you did. You came and you invested in relationships with us because you genuinely care for us. You genuinely love us. Make us people who do the same. On our own, it's impossible. But with you, nothing is impossible. And so we ask, Lord, that you'd make us people that are so overwhelmed and overcome by this new life that you've offered us, this restored connection to our Father in heaven, that we'd be people who just pursue it on every level here on earth right now. So Jesus, we love you and we praise you and we keep singing these songs of worship now. Amen.